Good morning, Disciples Church. Please rise for the scripture reading today. 1 Timothy 6, 11 through 16. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of eternal life, to which you were called about, which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He, who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in the unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be the honor and the eternal dominion. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. All right, you may be seated. Well, good morning. It is good to see you all, good to be with you this morning, and turn in your Bibles, if you're not already there, to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. My name is Jonathan Mosher, and it is a, a privilege and an honor um, to be able to worship with you today, to be able to open up this scripture with you, to hear you sing, and to hear the, the truths that we've been able to sing this morning. If you listen to the songs that we're singing, deep doctrinal truths that declare all kinds of of amazing and incredible things about who our God is. It's our privilege to sing them together, to worship our God together, and to be together this morning. And so I'm so glad that you're here. First Timothy chapter 6. Well, you all look well-rested. All right, got that extra hour of sleep. I hope you enjoyed that. Or if you're like our family, uh, you just enjoyed that, enjoyed that extra time with your kids at a slightly, uh, seemingly earlier hour at least. May not have gotten the extra rest, but it's good to see you regardless. And it's, it's one of those things, whenever this, uh, whenever this time of year comes up, we try to figure out what it is that we're going to do to try to trick our kids into sleeping longer. And nothing actually ever works, even though we've been granted that extra hour. So what we did instead last night is I took my boys to a movie, and we hung out, and we kept them up a little extra that did nothing to help them sleep in this morning, but we did have uh, a good time. But the one thing that we missed in doing that was kind of our bedtime routine. By the time we got home, both boys were asleep in the car. And the highlight uh, of one of, of our days together has been, for, for a seemingly long period of time at least, our nighttime routine. One of the things that we'll typically do is we'll read some stories together and we'll maybe read a Bible story. Or recently, my, my, my oldest son, Leo, has actually been reading for us. We've been working our way through the Chronicles of Narnia series together. And so he's been reading for us and doing all of those kinds of things. And then typically we'll kind of end. Uh, with that time of prayer. Less and less, I, uh, it seems like less and less I actually need to be involved in things. As my kids have learned how to read and do all this kind of stuff on, on their own, there's less of a need for, for me to be there unless there's accents in the story. Then I get called in. I'm the only one who can do those. And I don't do those in public, so you have to be at my house at bedtime to hear those. But but years ago, I heard a pastor um, share a story of one of the things that he had prayed with his sons at bedtime. And so particularly when my sons were younger, I would pray through different ideas with my kids. And as a parent, there's all kinds of things that you want to pray on behalf of your kids. Most of all, obviously, we want them to know the love of God and we want them to know and love 
uh, God. But among the things that we prayed at the, at the recommendation of this one particular pr- pastor, um, for a while when my boys were younger, we would pray this prayer earlier on. God, make me a man who is tough and tender. Make me tough so I can handle life. Make me tender so I can love people. God, make me a man. And Paul's text for us this morning is essentially the very same prayer that he has for his son in the faith, Timothy. He knows that in order to be faithful to what it is that God has called Timothy to do in his young ministry, he was going to need to be tough and tender. That there was going to need to be this balance of what it is to be a Christian man in particular in Timothy's case, that he was going to need to be both bold and gentle. And so Paul actually gives us in the text that we have this morning, both implicitly and explicitly, the description of one who knows and loves God. And if you actually read this text with that kind of a a frame around it, that kind of a lens over it, what you see really is a description of the growth of the Christian life. And so with that idea in mind, make me tough and tender. Make me, God, what you want me to be. Make me to know you and to love you. Let's read this first verse, and we'll just read the beginning of verse 11, and then stop and discuss. Here's what Paul writes. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. I think it's worth stopping right there to actually consider the language that we just read, because whether or not you realize that that phrase, man of God, in the New Testament, as it's used here, is actually very particular and specific and relatively unique language within the context of the New Testament. This title that Paul assigns to Timothy is only used twice in the New Testament. This particular language that's used here, it's only used twice in the New Testament, and the other time that it's used, it's also in reference to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 17. But it's interesting that he calls him man of God. We have a tendency to miss the significance of what that title actually declares about Timothy. But when you look at that phrase in light of the remainder of Scripture, what you find out is that the phrase man of God is actually packed with all kinds of significance and meaning. In the Old Testament, the phrase man of God is one that was reserved for those giants of the Jewish faith. It was reserved for men like Moses, who led the people out of Israel, Samuel, the great prophet, David, the great king, Elijah and Elisha, these men who demonstrated through their lives and their proclamation who the amazing God of Israel was. But here in this text, Paul uses this very same term to describe Timothy. And what's interesting about that is what little we know of Timothy to this point reminds us that there's very little that is particularly impressive about him. It seems as if he's an anxious person, that he was sickly, he was perhaps intimidated by the older men in the congregation, particularly those who were older in the faith than him. And here he is, this young Gentile, trying to be responsive to the call of God on his life. But what we find that's unique about Timothy is actually found in 2 Timothy 1, verse 5, which says this. Paul says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. See, when Paul calls Timothy man of God, he's not just using that title flippantly. He's actually reminding Timothy of his perfect identity in Christ. 
because his faith was solely in Jesus Christ. Timothy was not primarily identified by his anxiousness, by his feelings of youth, by his underqualification, or by the fact that he was going to have to confront those who were older and more influential and perhaps ought to have known more in their maturity in ministry than him. No, Paul in this moment is reminding Timothy that his source of hope, his source of confidence, his boldness rested firmly in his identity as a man of God. This was an identity that had been given to him, granted to him by God himself. It wasn't something that Timothy had earned. It wasn't something that he had constructed. And listen, do you understand, brother and sister, that the very same thing is true of you? And the question that immediately jumps into our minds is, well, how can that be true? How can that be true of me? I'm not a pastor like Timothy. I may may not have had a mother who was a believer like this. I didn't have the advantage of being trained in person by the Apostle Paul. How can you say the same thing is true for me? And I think the importance of that phrase, man of God, really comes into significance here because the phrase man of God in this context does not specifically reference Timothy's role as a pastor, nor is its application limited to Timothy. The word that is translated in our Bibles, man, is the word anthropos. It's, for, it's the word from which we, uh, we get our word anthropology, meaning humanity, mankind, people in general. It is not specific to his gender. It could be rightly translated in our context or in our Bibles as person of God. It's a nomenclature that applies to all believers in Jesus Christ. If you know Jesus Christ, this phrase applies to you and your life. It's an indication of the way that God sees us. It's a declaration of your new identity as a beloved and perfect child of God. And so here's the big point. The very title that God gives you serves as a reminder of how he sees you. He sees you as one who belongs to him, a person of God, that since we were justified, made dead to sin and alive to God, your worth as a person or as a Christian is not defined by your societal status or your occupation or your family heritage or your, or your ability to climb a moral ladder. Your ability to honor God and to live the new life that he's given you is not rooted in your ability to perform. And that's the beautiful story of the life of Paul and the life of Timothy. No, the reason your life is now pleasing to the God, the creator of the universe, is that Jesus already did everything required to make you a man or woman of God. His perfect life was applied to you. His righteousness, as we just stated earlier in our confession, was imputed to you. It was put on top of your life, infused into you, that you now have a new standing and a new identity before God himself. And imagine what this reminder must have done for young Timothy as he thought about the massive responsibility that was lying in front of him. As he thought about the challenges and the difficult conversations and all of the things that he was being asked to do and felt in and of himself, perhaps, like he wasn't up to the challenge. And so here's the question for you. Is this how you see yourself? 
Have you wrapped yourself in the designation that God has placed on you? Or are you trying to cover yourself with good works and religious observance and moral conformity? Having heard the truth that you are saved by God's sheer grace, and that word sheer just means alone, with nothing else and no other dependency, just by His grace alone, through faith in Christ alone, and and that even your ability to believe is a gift from Him, are you still sitting there thinking, yeah, but certainly I have to do something. Certainly there must be something that is asked of me that I have to do in order to either earn or maintain this position. But the answer comes back from Scripture with no apology and a resounding no. Nothing you can do. Nothing you've been asked to do. In Christ, the standard has been met. God's wrath was poured out on Him so that your sin has been forgiven. You have been crucified with Jesus and raised to new life in Him. So the question, to paraphrase one theologian, is what are you going to do now that you don't have to do anything? And here's why I spend so much time on that this morning. Because if you try to read the remainder of the instruction this morning and neglect to see it through the lens of who God has already declared you to be in Christ, if you instead try to forge your own identity through right living, it's like taking the robe of righteousness purchased by Christ and throwing it down so that you can try to cover yourself with the filthy rags of your own religiosity. And often, when we hear the Word of God preached or taught, or when we read instructions from others, that's the reinforcement that we get. The idea that the main way that we can motivate people into godly living sounds something like this in the words of Justin Taylor, that you are not X, and you should be X, and therefore you need to do or be X for God. But the main problem we have is not a lack of information. It's a lack of belief that what God has already stated about us is true. And the mode that we find in Scripture, in the words of one author, is that gospel obligations are always rooted in gospel declarations. That the imperatives of Scripture, the commands of Scripture, are always rooted in the indicatives of what God has said about you already. So to put this in example, and I could pick out a dozen different examples from the New Testament, but I'll just pick one that comes from Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 and 24. Paul says in that text, those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That's the declaration. That's the indicative. That's what's happened to you already if you know Jesus. The old man the old you is hanging dead, co-crucified with Jesus Christ on the cross. Therefore, verse 24, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. There's the command, the obligation, the instruction. Who you are informs what you do. And now with Timothy's identity having been clarified, Paul says, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Paul is saying, since you are this person of God, since this is who Jesus Christ has declared you to be, you are to flee from those things that marked the false teachers. 
And we find those things particularly in verses 3 through 10, but really throughout the remainder of the whole book. And if you were here a few weeks ago, you heard Dave reference these ideas as both wrong doctrine and wrong lifestyle. So first, wrong doctrine, which we see in verse 3. That there are some people who want to embrace doctrines and teachings that are opposed to the Word of God and counter to the instruction of Scripture and not in line with what God declares to be true in order to make their teaching more palatable to modern sensibilities. In other words, we're going to try to change or warp or twist the truth to align with cultural values because all of us desperately want affirmation. So people will ignore or diminish biblical teaching that is uncomfortable or objectionable or that which feels antiquated. And the flop opposite of that, or the rather connected idea, I should say, is wrong lifestyle. Look how he describes those things in verses 4 through 10. He says, conceit and ignorance. Paul's saying these false teachers, they're arrogant. They presume they have all the answers. They presume that from beginning to end, they know the right answer to the right question. They've got it all figured out. An unhealthy craving for controversy and quarreling. They're constantly looking for things to be upset about. And they want to bolster their arrogance by arguing and bickering. They're marked by evil suspicion. In other words, this is not a healthy discernment where one assumes good intent while remembering that we're interacting with imperfect people. This is assuming the worst of somebody else. It's not following the admonition of Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 where he says that love believes all things or rather presumes the best of the other. And finally, they're marked by their love and their pursuit of wealth as we talked about at length last week. And understand this, all of those temptations exist just as much for Christians today. We will always be tempted to either give in to wrong doctrine for the sake of gaining the approval of other people, or to give in to wrong attitudes for the sake of putting down other people. And both are an attempt to find satisfaction in ourselves rather than God. So Paul says when when Christians do this, they are not living in the new identity given to them by God. They are instead returning to the approach of the old flesh. They're trying to find identification in their own self-salvation project. So they'll settle for the self-salvation offered by the affirmation of a surrounding culture. And they'll settle for the self-salvation of proving that they're better than other people by dint of their strongly held opinions and morals. They'll settle for the self-salvation offered by the comfort and security of financial gain. And when we do this, we are falling into the trap of believing that we can save ourselves, counter to what we might testify. So this is what Paul means in Romans chapter 6, verse 2, where he says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? You are living in a manner that does not align with who you are. One theologian said that when Christians sin, it's as if they're experiencing temporary amnesia. You have forgotten who you are, 
and you're trying to live somebody else's life. And in the moment, brother and sister, where you don't feel dead to sin, but feel that old familiar pull of the flesh, the expectation for the believer is that the words of the good judge of the universe would come thundering into your ears to remind you that he has declared you to be dead to the flesh and to be alive to the Spirit. So Paul says first, run from those things which mark the lives of those who don't actually know Christ or who have forgotten who they are in Christ. And in verse 11, he says this, instead, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. And it's without accident that so many of those words correlate with what Paul is going to later say in Galatians chapter 6 about the fruit of the Spirit. These are things that come from the new birth, from the new life that you've been given. So several commentators at this point point out the same thing about this verse, which is that these attributes can essentially be broken down into three couplets. And that's how I want to address them for you this morning. The first couplet is this, pursue righteousness and godliness. These two things go together. And righteousness here, when he's talking about it in this context, he's not talking about your standing before God. He's not saying try to pursue right standing before God, for instance, in the way that the book of Romans talks about righteousness. But as it's being translated and used in this context, what he's talking about is integrity in your life. That the faith that you claim and believe has to be integrated with your lifestyle that it's not an inconsistency, that what you say you believe and the way that you live actually line up and that you're pursuing to the extent that there is, that there is discord or disagreement between those things, that you are pursuing integrity. It's behavior that is consistent with the identity that God has given you. But he doesn't just stop with saying pursue that integrity and that righteousness. He goes on to say godliness. Now, to be honest with you, I had a hard time trying to define what godliness is. If you're just trying to define it, you're trying to think about that idea and how to communicate it, it's kind of hard because what you're saying is, well, you're being like God, and inherently that is true, but that's still kind of an abstract concept for us to understand. So I hate to try to define a word by what it's not, but here I go. Godliness is the opposite of outward, hypocritical, religious legalism. Or perhaps better put, in the affirmative, Godliness in this context is spiritual sincerity. That there's nothing put on or performative about it. It's what comes of learning to spend time with the Father, to sit in His presence in silence and in solitude, to learn from His Word to respond to his pressing in your life, to look to him, not just in times of need or difficulty, but to pray without ceasing, which is to have that constant mindset of interacting with the Father, that all throughout the day, it's an ongoing conversation between you and God. But he doesn't just stop with those two. He says also pursue faith and love. And these couplets 
almost always go together in Paul's writings. You can find a dozen different examples throughout his writings where he says faith and love together. They often fit together. And, and, and one commentator, uh, Walter Liefeld, said it this way. He says, faith in this context is referring to the quality of one's relationship with Jesus. In other words, you trusted Jesus alone for your salvation, right? We're, we're making a claim as Christians that there is no other means by which we have access to the Father other than through Jesus Christ, that there's nothing we can claim in and of ourselves to have that access to him, but that we are dependent on Jesus Christ alone. But the follow-up question then is this, if you trusted Jesus alone for your salvation, do you also trust him for everything else? Or do you believe somehow that it's Jesus' work that gives you the new life, but now it's your job to maintain it as if you could? And he goes on and says, not only faith ongoing, not just for my salvation, but for my daily growth in Jesus Christ and for, for my dependency and my interactions and my conversations with other people and for the daily bread that I so desperately need as we talked about last week, but also now in love. We've used Thomas Aquinas' definition of love often, which is that idea that love is willing the good of the other, and it's a good and right definition, but here's how I want to define it just slightly differently this morning. Love in this context is the outworking of God's grace in your life. That because God in his unmerited favor, his unearned love toward you, gave you more than you ever needed, you are now in a position to extend that love to others. Listen, even those who don't deserve it. And my guess is, if we were to give you just a couple minutes to think about who in your life you feel doesn't deserve your love, and for some of you that list comes a lot easier than others, that we could find situations and circumstances in which love has not been a primary motivator in your life. So think about it through the lens of Timothy. He's interacting with these false teachers who have gone out of their way to make life incredibly hard for him. They've been difficult and they've challenged and they've pressed and they've denigrated and they've tried to destroy Timothy's reputation among the church. They've tried to take power for themselves and influence for themselves. And you can imagine, with, certainly without knowing Timothy's heart, you can at least imagine that it would be a temptation for Timothy to have all kinds of feelings for these people that were not love. And love is not just mere sympathy, it's not just emotion, it's not just experience, but love in this context might mean the calling out of others. And it certainly means the demonstration of the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ for me as I interact with others. And then finally he says, pursue steadfastness and gentleness. He says, first, be steadfast. Don't be drawn away now, Timothy. Don't drift Don't fall back into fear, is what he's going to say later. God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. He's saying to Timothy, stay the course. Don't give up. Keep pressing forward in that absolute confidence and faith in what it is that only God can do in your life and in the lives of others, but continue to press in gentleness. Paul says, don't be like these quarreling fools 
who are looking for reasons to squabble and fight, but be gentle and lowly like our great shepherd. Now, if you're going to put all of these ideas, first, the fleeing from those things that mark the lives of the false teachers, and second, the pursuit of these six particular spirit, uh, spirit, uh, fruits of the Spirit, rather, you could def- begin to define that then as sanctification. What we're being given here is not just mere instruction for Timothy. It's really a template. It's a pattern. It's a picture into what justification and sanctification actually look like in the life of the believer. And sanctification is just the big theological word that we use for our lives reflecting more and more the new identity that God has already granted us. It begins to reflect the life of our Savior and Lord. Sanctification, in the words of one commentator, is simply the art of getting used to your justification. Or as Luther said it, in that classic Latin phrase, simile eustis et peccator, meaning simultaneously saint and sinner. We're in this weird phase where the old flesh has been nailed to the cross and killed, and yet we still have a tension in our lives. We feel fleshly desires, even though we are spiritual creatures. We're tempted by the fruit of this world, when we know we've been promised something infinitely greater in Christ. In other words, the goal of the Christian life is not inherently that you would become so good in and of yourself that you no longer need grace, but rather that you so grow in the realization of your own inadequacy that you glory all the more in God's provision of grace. And we see this in the life of Paul himself. There's this interesting track that you can follow through his life from the moment of his conversion to the moment of the writing of his last letter where you see this progression in the life of Paul. He's growing in grace. He's growing in understanding of who God has created him to be. He's growing in his understanding of his need for constant dependency on the Spirit. It's what you find in Romans chapter 7 and Romans chapter 8 in particular. But what you also find is that Paul's language about how he refers to himself changes Paul, early on in his ministry, is talking about the grace of God extended to him, and he says this, he says, grace was extended to me, the least of all the apostles. And you hear in that a sense of humility. Paul is saying, look, I came on the scene later. I wasn't with Jesus in his earthly ministry, though he did appear to me on the road to Damascus, and and God's grace has been so generous and so good to me that it's, it's as if I'm the least of all the apostles. All of them as it were, ought to be considered ahead of me in line because of how wicked and broken I am. And you track that forward a little bit farther into Paul's ministry, and you find not only that he says he's the least of all apostles, but he actually says, I'm the least of all Christians. I'm the least of all believers. He's saying, if you want to begin to compare stories, if you want to find out who's done more wrong in their life, all you have to do is compare your life to mine. Anybody in this room murdered Christians and imprisoned them for their belief in the gospel? Paul has you beat. And that sense of humility and dependence on grace leads Paul to say, I'm the least of all Christians. Then toward the end of his life, you see that language change even more. And Paul says, not only am I the least of all the apostles and the least of all Christians, he says, but I am the chief of sinners. And yet grace abounds to me. That even as he grew in righteousness, that integrity 
between what God had declared about him and the lifestyle in which he lived, he still understood even more and more his need for God's grace. And so then Paul says in verse 12, now Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. And it may seem strange to us that immediately up on the heels of telling Timothy to be gentle, he now tells him to fight. But understand the particular language that's being used here. The language that's being used in this verse is actually not the language of warfare though that picture is used elsewhere in Scripture. The language that's being used here is specific to that of some sort of an athletic competition. So one pastor, a man named Eugene Peterson, tried to translate this verse this way. He said, but you, Timothy, man of God, run for your life from all of this. Pursue a righteous life, a life of wonder, faith, love, steadiness, courtesy. Run hard and fast in the faith. Run from the wrong, the wrong doctrine and the wrong lifestyle that no longer fits you, and instead run in the faith. So then the obvious question is this, well, how do we actually do that? And that's where we find in verse 12, the second half, where he says this, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Paul tells Timothy, take hold of the eternal life. Now, is he telling Timothy somehow to be saved once again? Clearly not. Timothy knew Jesus Christ. He knew where his salvation lied. So why in the world does Paul use this language of take hold of the eternal life? Here's what he's saying. He's saying, Timothy, you have to remind yourself of this. Don't forget about it. Don't live for now. Don't bend to the pressures and temptations of this life. Don't be satisfied with the shadow of good things in this life when God intends for you to enjoy the substance. God called you to this new life. People didn't call you to that. God did. Lois and Eunice, for all of their training and for all of their teaching and for all of their love and affection for Timothy, were not ultimately the ones who called him to Jesus Christ. Only Jesus could do that. So now Paul says, rest in that calling. Rest in the fact that God, the Creator, is the grantor and the guarantor of eternal life and that in His sovereign grace, He chose you, Timothy. He chose you, young anxious, underprepared, overconcerned, he called you to eternal life and to be a faithful minister of the gospel. See, the confidence for Timothy's life and ministry had to be rooted not in his ability, not in his gifting, or in his occupation. His confidence had to be in the one who called. And the very same thing is true for you. You are called by Jesus Christ while you are still a sinner, while you are still at war against him, in rebellion against him, with your fist in the air to an almighty God in that moment, he determined to set his love and affection on you. That from eternity past, he had chosen you. And that while you were warring, he saved you. And that you were called not only into salvation, into this new life of being a believer and figuring out this dance between justification and sanctification and 
how these two things work together. Not only were you called into all of that, but you were called to be a minister. Perhaps not occupationally, but that your calling is set and sure. That you have a job and a responsibility to do, and God has prepared you perfectly with the gifts and the skill sets and the personality that you have, with your experiences, good, bad, or indifferent, to be a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the lives of those around you, in the places that you live, work, and play. The same is true for you. So don't make the mistake, brother and sister, Don't make the mistake of forgetting what God has already declared about you. And don't try to find meaning in the self-salvation of this world or of outward religion. Hear the title that God has for you. Man of God, woman of God. Take hold of that eternal life. Pursue integrity and spiritual sincerity and depth of relationship and the outworking of his love. Be bold and gentle because the one who called you is faithful. He's equipped, he's called, he's placed, and he's given you a guarantee of the most important thing you could hope for in this life an unbroken relationship with him that does not end when you die. So trust and rest today. God, would you remind us that it's you who calls those? That it's you who calls those whom you know, men and women of your name. So God, make us men and women of God. Make us tough and tender. Make us tough so we can handle life. Make us tender so we can love people. Lord, make us men and women of God and do it for Christ's sake. And it's in his beautiful name that we pray. Amen. Would you please stand as we respond to this word in worship?